Well, good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. We're your hosts, Ron Beard and Liz Graves, hoping you'll join us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And just a reminder that during the pandemic period, we're recording this show in advance and won't be taking any calls today. Well, this afternoon, our topic is um, Breaking Bread, Essays from New England on Food, Hunger, and Family, uh, published by Beacon Press in 2022. And one of our guests, Deborah Joy Corey, a novelist, co-editor of Breaking Bread, and founder of Blue Angel in Castine, and she'll be with us um, in a little while. We also have uh, Stuart Kestenbaum, who's the, a, a contributor to the, uh, the book Breaking Bread. He's Maine's poet laureate, author of several books of poetry, including Things Seem to be Breaking, published by Deerbrook Editions. Um, he lives in Deer Isle. Uh, Kim Ridley is a contributor to Breaking Bread. He's a, she's a science writer, children's book author, including Wild Design, just published, and The Secret Pool. She lives in Brooklyn. And also from Brooklyn, uh, Marjorie Irving, Irving, uh, contributor of, to the uh, Breaking Bread. She's a lecturer in English at the University of Maine, a scholar and facilitator for the Maine Humanities Council. So welcome to you all. So you could, glad you could be here today. Deborah Joy, before we get to our other guests, I'd like to ask you for some, some background. How did you come to create Blue Angel and, and who does it serve? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on, Ronald, and and the other guests as well. I started by uh, getting very interested in uh, food injustice, really. When I wanted to write, I'd heard on the radio, (laughs) I love radio, I heard on the radio that uh, in my county alone that uh, uh, a really high percentage of families were going without food or didn't have enough food for every day. Um, And so I started to do some research and I talked to uh, people in my own town. I talked to churches. Then I went to food banks and talked to people and um, everyone was very open, which was wonderful. And the sort of feedback that I got or what I was realizing is that there was very little fresh food. Um, And it's difficult to carry fresh food. It really is because it doesn't last very long and not all food banks have um, the opportunity to have tons of freezers and refrigeration. And so, um, and I just got thinking about my own community and thinking, well, you know, that's just really not necessary that people are going without food. And we have, um, we have gardeners and we can raise money and we can buy fresh food. Um, And so the plan, I just started doing it. I just started asking people to give Mm, to help the community. And um, people were extremely receptive. They still are. My One of the things that I've learned is that people, most people want to do something. They're Mm. just not sure how to do it, how to go about it. So it was about, you know, 2019, almost four years ago that we just, um, 
I went to our church and I asked them if I could use some space, which used to be a Sunday school space they weren't using. And then there was a little playground sort of attached to it that they mm. weren't using. So I asked them if I could plant some um, vegetables and herbs. And they said, sure, go ahead. We think it's a, a great idea. And then just asked the community to donate. And before we knew it, we were just sort of creating this little food pile, <laughs> produce pile each week. And, um, you know, I was able to get a list of families in need from uh, a local church. And then, you know, uh, the other sort of roadblock in um, in the food, the giving of food is not everyone can get to a food bank. Sure. That's, that's uh, more of a struggle. And it, particularly if they're working. And most people who need help are working, maybe one, two, or even three jobs. So transportation is a real issue. So we thought if we could just do fresh and delivery, that we would fill a gap. Yes. Um, so that's just what we started doing sort of out of the back of my truck, <laughs> just <laughs> packing these wonderful boxes, beautiful boxes of produce, and just putting them on pe people's porches or steps. And, um, and it just sort of grew from there, you know, and, and to do, if you could just describe the community, you're in um, Hancock County, uh, well known to WERU listeners, but describe the communities and, and the kind of places that you were um, collecting products, produce from. Sure. Well, I live in Castine, Maine, that the shock was that there was, were about 15 families in our village alone that really needed some assistance with food. So that was shocking. And then I, in Penobscot as well. So we sort of serve casting and Penobscot area. And, and that is an area well known for um, its, its ability to grow vegetables. So it's, it's Absolutely. part of the, the bread basket or the, or the produce basket of Hancock County. Yes, absolutely. And um what I did is go around and talk to commercial farmers as well. And they um, have a lot of waste usually. And um, because they can't, they're so, so busy in the summer that they really can't stop and load up their trucks and transport it. But yes. if I were willing to come and pick it up when they gave me a call, they were there. And I just started doing that. They give me a buzz or they text me, we've got some extra radish, lettuce, whatever. And we pick it up, take it back to the church and then organize it. There's a really incredible, I mean, garden community, which you're speaking of, and commercial gardening, but there are also these incredible hobby gardeners, what I call home gardeners, that also really help us during those gardening months. So it's a combination of the commercial gardeners and we're picking up from them when they have extra. Um, and more recently, I'm working very closely with Tilth and Timber, which is a new farm to our community, um, a commercial farm in our community growing vegetables, which is really amazing. And we're working really closely together. So every week they're putting things in their cold storage for me to pick up on Sunday and take back and add to our boxes. Great. Well, what, what led to um, Breaking Bread? You're a writer. Um, I, this whole project began because you were doing some research, but Breaking Bread is just an amazing collection of essays from all over New England about food and hunger and family. How did you um, hit on that idea to support Blue Angel? 
Well, Breaking Bread is sort of has the same sort of personality as Blue Angel in a sense, in that the project grew out of tremendous goodwill. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I I've learned that if I just ask someone for something, they'll probably give it to me. <laughs> and um how I was inspired to uh, work on these essays and start putting them together was when I got to know the clientele of Blue Angel, and we we really sort of have dooryard visits. Um, I don't bother anyone. The box goes on their step or their porch, but they they hear me, and if they want to talk, they'll come out, and we'll have a conversation. And getting to know these families, um, I realized that not everyone has the same food narrative as I have, or have as I've been fortunate enough to have. I grew up um, in a family where my father really loved gardens. He didn't have his own gardens, but he had a number of gardeners that he would go and purchase from. And my mother was an incredible cook and baker. So our every day of our lives really centered around food. We never sort of had breakfast together without having a conversation of what are we going to have for dinner? <laughs> you know, what's what's on the menu? And um and so beginning to get to know the clientele and speaking with them, I learned that their food narrative were often very different from mine. Not some of them didn't really know how to cook. Uh, some didn't grow up in a home where a lot of cooking and baking was going on you know, part of the delivery was we sort of added for some families instruction of how to cook this, how, how these things can be done. So it was just so shocking to me that I thought everyone was like me. They just got up (laughs) thinking about food and they went to bed thinking about food. And every story was different among the clientele, the Blue Angel clientele. So I, you know, I do have this writing community and I thought, well, you know what? That means everyone's narrative is different. Sure. And maybe if we could start a conversation about food, just about food and people's own personal narratives and get that out there in terms of a conversation and a conversation piece for talking about hunger in our communities, um, it would be amazing. And it has been amazing. I mean, no one said no. They wow. and then people would suggest someone or they say, you know, this person might. And so I think we ended up with um 64 essays. It was so overwhelming that after I was into the project and working on it, I invited my friend Deborah Spark as co-editor, um, because it was just coming at a hefty speed. And I thought, you know, let's serve these writers as well. Let's not have to turn someone away. So it is that the writers essays are as varied as as the people I've been meeting and talking to and becoming friends with it's just very varied right yes and it was and, it's it's such a joy to and I can imagine that as you've taken this book on the road as it as it were and you've um, done book signings and had conversations um, the reactions must be just amazing as well because everybody who reads has their own story about food and family and perhaps hunger. Absolutely. You're so right about that, Ronald. And that is really the joy in it. I mean, you just, every time there's a reading, there's been so many readings over the summer that I haven't really even been able to attend them all and different book clubs, you know, picking the book up. But the when I am uh, able to attend, 
people do want to share their stories. They want to talk. And some of the stories are very, very difficult. And uh, but people want to really talk about their food identity. And it's it's fascinating. And within that conversation, you sort of start to understand you know, you get a repeat of where the gaps are. You get a repeat of where the problems might m- might be in terms of um, food justice. So yes, I've been taking a lot of notes. I've been learning a lot. It's been wonderful. Well, this is just a wonderful project. And we're going to hear from some um, of our other guests who are also contributors um, in just a moment. So we're so glad that you could join us. And um, good luck with with your own um, project, uh, Blue Angel. And by the way, where did Blue Angel come from as a as a as a name? Uh, Well, Blue Angel um, came from a dream, actually. Uh And um, I had. I was at a very low point because I had uh, our family had lost our niece um, Mm. suddenly and uh, a very young woman who had an aneurysm and it was a really tough time and it was an icy winter. (laughs) And um, every morning when I woke up on my window were these ice, these ice wings, sort of, I could see the shape, you know, the frost and the ice had made these shapes, which were really beautiful and encouraging. And that was the time when I was working on this uh, food essay. And I just had this very powerful dream one night of the, of the, the wings, but they were blue. And I thought to myself, that's it. Get going, Deborah. And, you know, and sometimes these, you know, in my life, even when I take on projects, they're sort of overwhelming. And and my mother always told me, well, just do the next thing, you know, uh-huh. just have the next conversation. And I just felt in honor of my niece, who was a wonderful gardener and, and cook and baker. Let's run with it. Well, run with it. You did. Thank you so much for being with us here on Talk of the Towns, Deborah Joy. Corey and uh, her wonderful co-edited book with Deborah Spark called uh, Breaking Bread Essays from New England on Food, Hunger, and Family, um, Beacon Press in 2022. Thank you. Thank you, Ronald. It's a pleasure. Um, So uh, this book, Breaking Bread, um, just seems to be a wonderful topic for our times. Um, Perhaps we can um, uh, start with each of you. Liz, do you want to uh, start with um, Stu and and, uh, find out a little bit more about how he became involved in this? Uh, Deborah, in her introduction to the book, has this wonderful image of produce appearing on her porch as she was starting Blue Angel. And I imagine the essays appearing on her digital porch in in similar bounty. It's just lovely. So Stu, would you tell us the backstory of your piece? It's called Heirlooms. Where did it where did it come from in your sure. So I was contacted by by Deborah uh, Joy Corey and also Deborah Spark, the two Deborahs who edited the book, you know, to write an essay about food. And I think uh, while I have many great food experiences and love things like fried clams at Bagaduce lunch. I could have written about that, but I didn't. I chose to write about remembering going through my mother's things with my sister when my mother was uh, on her way to being in a nursing facility. And we went through things in her apartment, which had already been called more than once in various moves. And 
and I was thinking about the actual objects that are in the kitchen and how you remember them and the meals that they made. And, uh, and I realized that was a very, uh, just called to me to write about. Great. Yeah. And you say, well, we'll hear you say the pan you saved uh, is um, one of the special things it's made for is latkes. What are your, what are your favorite latka accompaniments? I'm a sour cream person myself okay. and applesauce, but I go more for the sour cream. I'm interested <laughs> in just a, just heart health, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, well, would you, would you read a bit of it for us? Sure. Uh, this is the, uh, the beginning of it into where I talk about what I might get. It falls to my sister and me to sort through the household items. We're kneeling in the living room of my mother's small apartment in the assisted living complex. She has already been moved to the adjacent nursing home and will survive there only a while longer. Even though these things are the touchstones of our childhood, there's not much of material value. We spend the afternoon dividing household items some things go to goodwill, others to our children or nieces and nephews, and some to us. My mother made provisions for a few pieces of heirloom jewelry years ago. For the rest, it's up to us. Making these decisions is humbling. What is the meaning of what we've accumulated? When an object reaches the thrift store, it becomes only stuff. If we hold on to it, it may continue to hold meaning. This afternoon, we're sorting objects and listening to the stories they tell. Our mission comes at a time when I don't need to add anything else to my own life. My children are mostly grown and out of the house, and I've got enough stuff of my own that needs sorting. What I'm looking for is something to remember. Most of my mother's pots and pans have survived four moves and over 60 years of use, as have many of the kitchen utensils that I remember from my childhood. And I remember my mother in the kitchen, where she cooked every meal and where we ate most of the time. Our dining room was used only for larger family gatherings and holiday dinners. I remember particular meals, like a Friday night dinner featuring a chicken soup I still try to emulate, or the sponge cake soaked with orange juice and layered and, layered and topped with whipped cream, which is still the cake of choice for my birthday. But it's the simpler things too, the way she could make perfect scrambled eggs with the butter browned, or put the extra frosting to heart, the extra frosting from a cake to harden in a small custard dish for surprise treat. Oh, that's great. Uh, Stu Kestenbaum reading his essay, Heirlooms, um, in the book, Breaking Bread, Essays from New England on Food, Hunger, and Family, um, Beacon Press 2022, and Deborah Joy Corey and Deborah Spark are the co-editors. Um, uh, Stu, any any particular um, thoughts after kind of um, putting it in and, and kind of beginning to see how this all accumulated, how how your story kind of dovetailed with some others in in the in the book? Well, I remember getting the book, and I'm thinking well, it's like a big school assignment, I guess, and you want to see what the other kids did too, you know. And it's like it was pretty wide open in terms of the choices. And 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 Marjorie and Kim and I have we were on the road everywhere from Brooklyn to Castine, I think, our world tour, doing some readings. But you know how everybody, just so many ways that people addressed, thought about the topic. And, and it also just strikes me, it's a place where you can go deep pretty quickly. Mm. It wasn't just like, I like to add salt, I like sugar. It was like, you know, like this is what my parents meant to me. This is like the meals I remember. I think it's, it goes 
it's got to be our, some of our earliest memories, I would think, you know, and, and that, that you, you need the food to survive literally and, and figuratively, I think, mm. uh, is a big part of it. I was just, I was, it was great to see what other, other people had done because there's such a variety of, of, uh, of topics. Mm. Well, let's go to one more. Um, Kim Ridley. Uh, Kim, as we said at the top of the uh, show, is uh, author of um, Wild Design and the Secret Pool. She's a science writer and a children's book author. Um, Kim, I'm so glad you could be with us. Tell us how you got um, invited um, to participate in this. You, you probably knew um, Deborah Joy Corey. Yes, yes, and an admirer of Deborah's work. Uh, and received the invitation, um, as did Stu and Marge and the other writers by email, um, to write a piece. Deborah explained her uh, collection, and one of <clears throat> one of the many things that really um, moved and inspired me about this book um, is Deborah's mission with Blue Angel. Um, so I was thrilled to do this. Um, my inspiration for my essay, which is called A Mess of Peas, uh, was literally staring at me in the face from my desk. <laughs> um, I keep a photograph of my father, uh, my late father on my desk. Um, and it's a picture I took of him in his pea patch in Springvale, Maine, uh, which is where I grew up. I'm uh, 10th generation on my father's side um, from York County, Maine. Um, and I have been trying to write about my father for a long time. Um, and it's difficult to write about a kind, humble, self-deprecating person um, and um, make it rich and interesting and not sentimental. Um, you know, bad actors make much better characters and stories. So, um, when I thought my father thought about food and my father and there he was in his pea patch. Um, I think as Stu said, that just allowed me to go deep into that story. So I um, asked myself, what is it about this picture of my father and why do I keep this on my desk? Uh, why this particular image? Uh, it's him in his place that he loved. But one of the things I noticed in the photograph, he was a very cheerful, um, happy person. His expression was really serious. Um, so this, this led me on a, a path of inquiry um, and exploring uh, my relationship with my father, with place, um, with food, uh, and with gardening. So, and I didn't know where it was going to end up. I had a loose idea, but it, it just allowed me to go, to tell a story um, about him. So it was really a gift um, to write and participate in this uh, collection. Well, would you like to read a portion of A Mess of Peas? Sure, sure. I'll just, um, I'll start, I'll just read a little bit of the beginning um, and just a little tiny bit of background about um, my father. So he uh, lived uh, almost all of his 85 years, um, pretty much on a one mile square patch of land in Springvale. And one of the things that was so mysterious about him um, to me is that he didn't really wanna go anywhere else. He loved where he lived. Um, my parents would travel a bit, but he was always, you know, even going to Hawaii, he's like, yep, very different here. Can't wait to get home. And he didn't um, want material things. He was very happy with what he had. He grew up very poor on a subsistence farm. Um, 
but was just a happy, happy, loving person. So, and I was the, I wanted, you know, I couldn't understand not wanting to be elsewhere and get out of Dodge as quickly as possible. <laughs> Here I am back in Maine. <laughs> so in a photo that I took of him more than 30 years ago, my father watches over me from his pea patch. The peas are blooming and he is in his prime, burly in a navy blue baseball cap, green polo shirt and jeans his arms as brown as the ground he works. His expression is serious, unusual for a cheerful man who loved to joke around and sing Willie Nelson tunes. A man whose standard response to, how are you, was, if I was any better, I couldn't stand it. This was especially true when he had his hands in the dirt, as he did every spring and summer afternoon after filling potholes and digging ditches all day for the Maine State Highway Department. Peas were the first seeds he planted after the interminable winter. If you want peas on the 4th of July, plant them on Patriot's Day in April, he always said, when the maples bloom and the first wood thrushes returned to Southern Maine. I don't remember the first time I helped my father plant peas, but I was surely young, maybe six or seven. Following along behind him, I mimicked his gestures, strewing wrinkled pellets into shallow furrows, then gently tamping soil over them, my fingers stinging with cold. I never grew into the passionate gardener my father was, but something else took root. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much. Liz, to you. Great. Thanks, everybody. Um, turn to Marjorie. I really loved your piece and Ron and I were reflecting on how it includes a part of Maine's story in the last 50 or 60 years that went a different direction. You know, the, the country over the last hundred plus years, it's mostly a story of people being further from the sources of their food. Um, and then in Maine, around about the 1970s, you can correct my timing in your case, um, people decided they wanted to raise their own food. And you have this wonderful observation that your mother and then even your grandmother, if she had been around when visiting from the city, she, she shook her head at the way you lived. And I'm sure she, you say, I'm sure she wondered why with a supermarket so close, we chose to pay with our sweat for everything on the table. Would you tell us some of the thinking behind this? Sure. Um, well, uh, if, if you ask my children how it felt to be paying with that sweat, I don't think they would be quite as enthusiastic as, as their parents were. But sure. the reason that I wrote the piece, um, Deborah Joy knew I had been working on a blog for my, just, just for my children, I have, I have five. And I did not want to be in the position as we all are so often when a parent or grandparent dies of saying, oh, I wish I had written down their stories. Oh, I have a, I, I have a question, but I can't ask them because they're dead. So I thought, well, no, you know, I'm going to start this blog just for them. And it's going to be as much as I know of the family history, not so much in a genealogical way, because I, I don't, I can't go back 
very far at all, just as far as my great grandparents, but just to let them know where we came from and how we got to this country. So I did that and then that kind of morphed into, well, I think I'm also going to tell them some stories about their early childhood and what it was like when they were growing up. And that turned into a blog about food. Um, I, I made obviously major changes in it for the book and was very, very happy to work on it. I had a whole middle section about what, what I ate as a child in New York. And Deborah Spark said, well, that just doesn't belong there. So I had to murder a lot of darlings along the way. And I, 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 I miss them. I hope that someday I'll be able to develop that into another piece of writing. Sure, that's a lovely, um, brings around something I was hoping to touch on, which is that um, the editors, both Deborah's, um, have a project about food and uh, noticed that it connected to so much other deep human experience, as Stu noted, and you have a project about your family deep human experience that became about food. That's awesome. I'll, I'll, I'll read a bit, but before, just before I do, um, I, when Stu and Kim and I do the, the, when we're on the road, uh, I like to go after the two of them because one of the things I've noticed in the book is how there, there's a common theme, not common to every piece of writing in the book, but to an awful lot of them about how food connects us to our families and to the world at large. It, it, it is such a unifying piece. And I, I remember going to a talk by Sam Sifton at COA a couple of years ago, and he talked about the dinners that he had started in the church basement in New York, where everyone was welcome, everyone. And they would just make big pots of spaghetti sauce. I, I, so, I so wish that at this time when there are so many deep divisions that we could just gather around a table and eat together because I can't think of a better way to bring people together. Anyway, here we go. Um, so I'm going to read you the first sentence and then just to give you a sense of the whole and then I'll, I'll read further down. The title is Measuring Lives. Unlike Prufrock, the women in my family measured out our lives not with coffee spoons, but with rolling pins and mixing bowls. And then I go on to talk about my grandmothers, one of whom was a really awful cook. And, and, the, and the other was sort of the family standard that none of us ever managed to come up to. So this was my, this was my grandma, Edith. She creamed butter and sugar with a wooden spoon in a yellow mixing bowl. She chopped by hand. She'd sooner poison you than feed you a potato pancake that had been warming in the oven instead of coming straight from the cast iron pan to your plate. Edith was proud of her cooking and disdainful of anyone who didn't give food the time and attention it deserved. She made jelly using a muslin bag tied to a broomstick 
suspended on two chair backs. The cooked fruit went into the bag and the jelly slowly dripped out before it was poured into jelly glasses, sealed, of course, with melted paraffin wax. Now, some cooks might get fed up watching the drip, drip, dripping. Some cooks might squeeze that jelly bag, but those cooks wouldn't have had jelly you could see through. Jelly as clear as the window glass she polished that very morning while the jelly dripped. Before it went into the jelly bag, the fruit and sugar cooked a long, long time until they reached the gelling point. Some cooks, like Edith's best friend Stella, might use powdered pectin to hurry the process, but then you'd risk having Edith tell her granddaughter, Stella Hecht is a very nice person, but she uses pectin. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Um, any any uh, reflections, uh, Marjorie, about um, the, the full essay, set of essays? Anything that surprised you in, in some of the other contributors? Oh, I... I always get surprised. I always get surprised, as Robert Frost said, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. And I, I constantly get surprised in a wonderful way by things I had not expected. Um, I, I knew Kate Russo as an artist more than a writer. And I, I can't tell you how often I laughed out loud when I read her essay in this book. It's just <clears throat> really wonderful. But it... Uh, uh, once again, I think, uh, you know, as Kim said, and uh, it, it just talking about food, writing about food evokes really deep feelings, deep feelings of connection and deep feelings of family. And I found that over and over again, it connects us to our pasts and our heritage in a way that I just don't think anything else does. I always regret when uh, people tell me, my students, for example, that they've lost not only their the language of their ancestors, which happens all the time, but they've lost the foods as well. And I, I, I think that's a shame. So this book is a celebration of food and family. Mm. So I'll just remind listeners they're tuned to Talk of the Towns this afternoon, and we're talking with some of the contributors to um, a new book called Breaking Bread, Essays from New England on Food, Hunger, and Family, um, published by Beacon Crest uh, this year, 2022. And uh, we have with us uh, Stu Kestenbaum, um, Maine's Poet Laureate and uh, author of several books of poetry, including Things Seem to be Breaking. Uh, Kim Ridley is, is with us. Um, she's a science writer, a children's book author, and her latest book is called Wild Design. And we just heard from Marjorie Irving, um, who is the contributor to um, the book and lecturer at the University of Maine in the English department. And she's also a scholar facilitator with the Maine Humanities Council. This, this project is to um, support um, thinking about uh, food insecurity, but in particular to support Blue Angel, and each of you probably have some knowledge of that. Um, uh, who can who can tell us a little bit of, about Blue Angel? Anybody? Deborah Joy, I'm channeling Deborah Joy right. Great, now. 
Great. She does not talk about food insecurity. She talks about hunger. That when, when you talk to people, they will never say, I'm food insecure. They will say, I'm hungry. My children are hungry. Yeah. So that I, 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 I just wanted to make that point. I think it's such an important one. I don't think any of us understand how deep the need is. If we work at food banks or if we have anything to do with them, we may get an inkling. But I, I, I just think this is a wonderful project. I'm so happy to be part of it. Mm. I think you know, one of the one of the interesting things about the uh, many interesting things about the book, and when Marge and Stu and I were reading together with Deborah Joy, is the conversation uh, it inspires. Um, it was a wonderful conversation after our reading in Brooklyn, and a lot of people here aren't aware that that people are hungry. Um, and so it it uh, inspires thinking and action. Um, and Blue Angel's mission um, is to buy food from local farmers, so fresh local food, and deliver it to families in need. Um, rural hunger is often invisible. Um, so I think that this book, you know, ra- raises a lot of great questions. Um, and I really see the book. Um, as an invitation. Um, so it's not just about the contributors, we who have written pieces, but it, um, I think as, as Marge says, it invites everybody, everybody has a place at the table in this book. So, you know, it's about memory, family, connection, hunger, but also inviting everybody into this conversation. Um, you know, as Marge said, food is one of the very few things we have in common in these divisive times. Um, I keep, and I keep the book by my bedside. Um, mm. I just, it's wonderful. Uh, the conversations that happen uh, within Breaking Bread and then the conversations um, that the book inspires are, are to me very powerful. Uh, Stu, what would you add in terms of, of, of uh, Blue Angel, your connection? Well, you know, I was thinking, you know, the focus that, that Deborah has on, on farm fresh produce, you know, uh, if people contribute to food pantry, sometimes they'll think, well, like think of like a lower standard or a different kind of food, like, like, well, everybody will want powdered milk or, you know, it's like you, you're not saying, well, what would, here's what I would want to eat. Here's the best I can offer somebody. I'll offer the best, not like the secondhand things that, that it's a deserving the very best. It's a, a different take on it, I think. Sometimes it can be a, uh, like a lower standard, mm-hmm. not acknowledging, uh, like if you can't afford food, well, I'm not gonna give you the best food. I'll give you something that's just okay. This, uh, this I think, I mean, I haven't spoken to Deborah about it, but it seems to me it turns it around by saying, well, this is grown right here. This is the best food you can have and, and everybody deserves to have that, which I think is, uh, I just appreciate that perspective. Well, and I think we we have that image of um, less than um, the best from the old days of how we dealt with hunger, um, and that was to provide you know government subsidized um, cheese and and powdered milk. And what I see in um, Blue Angel and so many other projects around the state of Maine and elsewhere in the United States is the community responding to this and saying. Oh, these are our neighbors. <laughs> Let's make sure they have good, healthy food. And, right. and the other part of that is health. 
um, and and wanting people to have um, goods because they know that healthy people are happy people and the community is happier as a result. Right. It doesn't make like a hierarchy out of who gets the best food. Yeah. yeah. And I think also that we've been talking about how food supports human connection, which of course we also can't survive without that if you're, you and your family don't have enough to eat, everything is more difficult and it's more difficult to make these memories that the rest of us survive on or that those of us who have enough to eat regularly survive on. So that's um, something that's, that struck out to me. Yeah. So what, what do you imagine, um, uh, Marge, you talked about uh, making a connection with everybody in the community to think about um, food. Um, readers of this are going to be drawn into this, this conversation. Um, what do you want the impact of this to be? What um, do you see impacts perhaps at the personal and family level, but also at the societal level or the community level? Um, what do you see happening as a result of this wonderful book? Marge? Well, of course, one thing, I would like everybody in the United States of America to buy a copy because the proceeds will go to support Blue Angel and feed more hungry people really good food. But, um, you know, beyond that, I think it's, it's great to get people talking about their own stories and, and telling their own stories. We try at Thanksgiving time, here, this, people will be listening to this before Thanksgiving. And when you're all gathered around the table, how about stories about food? what your grandparents cooked, what you ate as a child, so that your children and grandchildren know the, the things that bind us together around the table. I, I think that would be a great way to start for all of us. As far as, you know, this, a broader societal issue, I wish I were sanguine about this, but I think I am not because we really have lost so many of the institutions where people used to come together. I went to a lot of Grange suppers in the 70s, a lot of bean suppers. And um, I just don't think those happen as the way they used to. I know young people, I'm sorry to say, have never been to a potluck. How can you not know what a potluck is? So I, I would love to think that we'll eat together more, we'll respond to invitations to get together around food. That would be my wish, but I don't know if it will come true. I can well, speak up for the, for the village youngers that some of, the, of our, these same organizations in Maine, like Blue Angel and like on, near on MDI, we have something called Open Table. MDI and its activities are um, in addition to, to getting food to people is very much tied in Marjorie with, with exactly what you're talking about with uh, community suppers that are also much like that um, New York spaghetti dinner that, um, that Mr. Sifton put together. So it's happening. <laughs> Um, Stu, how would you um, um, talk a little bit about what you hope will happen as a result of this book? What, what are your thoughts? In Judaism, you fat, you're obligated to fast once a year on Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement. It's, so you're expiating your sins. I'm a terrible faster. 
I mean, I'm hungry right now. And the thought that I might not have food makes me hungry. And I don't fast well, but at that day, uh, I'm so aware of the difference between life and death is food. You know, that if I don't eat, it, it wouldn't take that long. I mean, you know, weeks, I don't know, but I'm just aware of that, you know, and you can go to a drive through and get coffee. But, you know, when it comes right down to it, you're, you need this to survive. It's like, it, it's not a, it's not a metaphor. It's for real, you know, and that, that, that that's what keeps us alive. And it's just, I'm, I'm just, uh, I think about that. And I think about that these stories, you know, they're not, they're not about connoisseurship. Like here's how you make the very best this or that. It's really about what the meaning was in the food that you ate and that the meaning that you, so we survive on the, on the, on the actual food and you survive on the meaning that the food imparts to, I think is, is part of it in all the stories, whether your mom was a good cook or a bad cook, she was your mom and she cooked, you know, mm. she could have been your dad and cooked too. I, in my family, that was not, not the case, not the case. But. Kim, how about you? What would you like to see happen as a result of, of kind of readers and writers engaged in the process of thinking and feeling about food? Yeah, well, I, I definitely echo, um, you know, Marge's thoughts about, you know, it's unimaginable that people don't know what a potluck is um, and envisioning more people regathering around the table and sharing conversation. Um, but I think, you know, on a personal level that contributes to the whole is, um, you know, I hope people read this book and uh, savor these, these essays, literally find themselves somewhere in here. Um, and slow down. I mean, the what I learned from my father uh, is um, in a mess of peas is what abundance really is and what wealth really is. Um, and so I, I just hope, you know, individually, you know, everybody who reads these books will see themselves, will learn something new um, and, and come back to gratitude um, and think about the larger picture uh, in their own communities. Um, who can we serve? How can we share food? How can we connect with someone? Um, yeah, so really slowing down and, and being thankful. Um, and as Marge said, with Thanksgiving coming up and always sharing our stories. I remember something um, Terry Tempest Williams said years ago, um, stories bypass rhetoric by piercing the heart. So just really telling our stories, getting to know one another as humans. I love that. And I uh, makes me think of my first reactions on looking, hearing about the book, and then finally diving in. That I was thinking, this is not my thing. I am not a food person. I grew up on a lot of frozen food, um, but thanks partly to your pieces and others, I got into okay. Well, I did clean the kitchen with my mother, even though it hadn't been an exciting set of meals. And so um, the that we all have all of our stories are different um, is, is part of it. So I would encourage folks like me who do not think of ourselves as liking to talk about food to, to give the book a try anyway, because it's, there are points of connection, I promise. What, what has been some of the reactions? You've done the, your readings together in the, in the area. Um, what have been some of the reactions that you remember from um, people who have been at your talks or from readers who might have said, oh, I just read your essay? Um, any, any reactions, Kim? You're nodding your head, so I uh, call yeah. on you first. 
Well, as I, as I mentioned, when um, Marge and Stu and I read together in Brooklyn, people just kind of the awareness and Deborah Joy was there about, about hunger in our communities. But I also love the way Marge and Stu's pieces connected. They just, um, there's so much uh, commonality. Um, and I'm sure um, as with many of uh, the contributors who've done readings, people have come up to them afterwards. Um, quite a few people came up to me. The essay is about, because it's really, it's literally about peas and abundance and, and what my father, what I learned from my father by his living example. And many people have come up to me and said, oh, I've taught my, my granddaughter how to you know, pick peas and oh, that yes, they're so delicious. And uh, the, or this reminds me of my growing up. Um, and just kind of this really palpable feeling of um, joy, I would say. Uh, and, you know, people just smiling. And I found myself smiling, listening um, to Stu and, and Marge and, and others read. There's just this kind of, I would say, joy. Marge, any, any reactions you recall? Um, I did a reading at the bookstore in Norwich, Vermont, mainly because my daughter and son-in-law and two and their two daughters lived there. And so I had a place to stay and it was a great excuse to go and visit them. But afterwards, I went uh, to both of my granddaughter's classes, one an eighth grade class and one a 10th grade class. I might get that wrong, but they'll forgive me close enough. And um, I, I, the kids had read the essay beforehand, which was wonderful. They were very well prepared, but they were just great about telling their own stories about food. And um, because this uh, district, Norwich, Vermont shares schools with Hanover, New Hampshire, the high school is in Hanover and the middle school, there were a lot of children there whose parents were either at Dartmouth or at Mary Hitchcock. They were from all over the world. It was this wonderfully diverse group. And they would mention foods that none of us in Maine probably ever ate or had heard of, but it was just, it was wonderful. And they told many stories about food and kitchens and, and cooks. It was just great. So again, the power of the unification, the unifying power of food was brought home to me. Great. Stu, any quick reactions? And then I'll, I think we'll draw to a close. Well, Stu? I, I think that uh, in addition to experiencing what the writers have to say about their relationship to memory and, and food and it's really, it does trigger stories in people because everybody's got that, that story. You know, if you hear about some dish that was made somewhere, you'll remember one that you had at your kitchen table. I mean, just, it's, a, you, it's, it's not about expertise. It's really about experience and the experience of food. And with food is almost invariably food and community. So I think it just brings those together. Thanks, Stu. Let's hear from Carl Little and his reading of his essay in Breaking Bread called Memorable Meals. Memorable Meals, or How My Mother's Manicotti Saved the Day. From early on, my mother, Patsy Little, was the architect of memorable family repasts. While my father, Jack Little, made a mean slumgullion and eggs any mook, my way of saying without gooey stuff, my mother created the Chinese dumplings, jiaozha, 
Swedish meatballs, borscht, and manicotti that are the makings of family legend. The labor-intensive dumplings owed their inspiration to my grandfather, Lester Knox Little, who had been Inspector General of Customs in China, and my father, who had spent time in Shanghai when he was young. Thanks to them, the family menu leaned a bit to Chinese, with the pork-filled dumplings the pièce de cant résistance. I vaguely remember my mother rolling out the dough and twisting the dumplings into their odd, almost origami shapes. With five children and a husband, there was a lot of stuffing and pinching. While it never felt like it was every child for her or himself when it came to dinner, some of us were swifter than others to ask for seconds. The recipe for the Swedish meatballs with their brilliant dill accent may have come from my godmother, Inger Hagen, a survivor of the Nazi invasion of Norway, Inger was among the most self-reliant people I ever met, and she loved food. Among other Scandinavian delicacies, she turned us on to Norwegian goat cheese. Seated at her breakfast table in Alford, Massachusetts, we would slice the light brown block onto homemade bread and sigh as we ate. Whoever taught my mother the recipe, my siblings and I took our time with each forkful, dividing up the roughly round balls of meat into halves and quarters to make the love last longer. The borscht most certainly owed its place in my mother's culinary repertoire to Catherine Katya Alexeyev, a longtime faculty member at Manhattanville College. She taught Russian. Katya was among my mother's closest friends. In spring, she offered a remarkable Russian Easter spread at her home in Seacliff, New York, which featured all manner of sweets, pickled things, and old country specialties. I hated beets, but my mother's borscht recipe somehow cooked the unpleasant taste out of those deep red roots and gave them the appearance of boiled potatoes. I wielded my spoon with eagerness and added generous portions of sour cream. And the manicotti, perhaps the greatest meal of all and the one with the most associations. In my late teens, I'd get stoned if I knew manicotti was on the menu. The pot enhanced the appetite. My brother John and I, and sometimes a couple of our friends, would appear at the table, all smiles, eyes gleaming, almost sighing for what lay ahead, the wonder and aroma of ricotta cheese, tomato sauce, pasta shells, etc. At the time, my parents were headed toward the end of an increasingly bitter marriage, the tension in the household palpable. I can see my mother bearing the dish from the oven, her mittened hands grasping the Pyrex. And for some reason, I picture my father in the next room, watching Olympic ice skaters, exclaiming at successful triple salchows. In retrospect, that image of my parents seems a bit simplistic, but it's how I remember them. My mother, angry and suffering. My father, seemingly oblivious in front of the television. They divorced a few years later, much to everyone's relief. You might say the manicotti helped us survive those sometimes trying times, providing a savory escape. Neither I nor my siblings, to my knowledge, make any of my mother's dishes today, which is a shame. They are a part of our shared past, and any one of them, prepared properly, would provoke a Proustian reaction, swiftly return us to a crowded table and tender 
if sometimes troubled times. Of course, new great meals have arrived to take their place along with the loved ones who make them. My wife, my children, my siblings and their spouses, family, friends. A supreme chickpea curry topped with hot mango chutney, cilantro-accented fish tacos, over-easy eggs on an everything bagel. These and other offerings are the delectable foundation of future memories. Well, we've come to the end of an hour um, very quickly. Be sure and join us from 4 to 5 on the second Wednesday afternoon of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you have comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org. And thanks especially to our guests um, this afternoon. Um, we're talking about, we were talking about Breaking Bread, Essays from New England on Food, Hunger, and Family, published by Beacon Press, edited by Deborah Joy Corey and Deborah Spark. And of course, Deborah Joy is uh, the founder of Blue Angel. And that's the, um, the project that will be benefiting from the purchase of uh, this wonderful book, Breaking Bread. So we had uh, in the studio with us, we had uh, Marge Irving, who's a contributor to the book, a lecturer in English at the University of Maine. We had Kim Ridley, children's book author, among other things, um, including her latest book, Wild Design, and Stu Kessenbaum, uh, Maine's poet laureate, author of Things Seem to Be Breaking, published by Deerbrook Editions. Thanks to you all for joining us. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown and Joel Mann for engineering our program. Stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6 and The Groove Shop from 6 to 8. Liz Graves and I are producers and hosts for Talk of the Towns. This is Ron Beard wishing you a good afternoon.